Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here at Apolloni Vineyards. Uh, it's July 30th, 2020. We're here with Kevin Green from La Rondonnet Wines in Apolloni. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Kevin. We really appreciate this. My pleasure. Uh, first question and most important question for our purposes today is why wine? Why wine? Uh, it's a good question. I wanted to be involved in making something that was, I guess, more important to people and brings people together. Uh, as opposed to, I would say, a tech device that um, is important, of course, to people's lives, but it isn't as emotionally uh, charged or important. And uh, so I really wanted to to do that and also use all of Kevin. Um, I'm sure one of your questions will be, what did I do before wine? Uh, this is a second career for me. Uh, so I'm also a chemical engineer. I started life as a chemical engineer. And uh, that was very brain-focused and Kevin at the keyboard kind of thing. Uh, so I wanted to get up and move around and use all of me, mm-hmm. the whole body and the outside a bit more. So tell us about that, about uh, kind of pre-wine life. Uh, what, 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 what brought you down the chemical engineering path? Uh, it's a good question. Also, um, I, good questions. Yeah. <laughs> um, I am very analytical and I suppose my parents might have observed that from early on and thought, oh, Kevin's gonna do something uh, engineering-like. And my dad's an economist, and I thought about studying economics or psychology as well as engineering, and his advice to me was, Kevin, get an engineering degree because you can always go back and do economics. Uh, It'd be much more difficult to go the other way around. So uh, I started studying electrical engineering and then eventually, like very late in college, changed to an even more difficult major and got my chemical engineering degree. Um, I guess it suited me and my personality and uh, I actually find that that's true in winemaking as well because the more analytical, uh, there there is the art and the science, uh, don't get me wrong, Um, and my challenge is always to bring in the more artistic side of me to the winemaking, but I think that more consistent and ultimately better wines are made with a lot of attention to detail Mm -hmm. and a really analytical approach. Mm -hmm. So I have found that um, especially chemical engineering is a super good fit mm-hmm. uh, for winemaking. When you made the switch and, and then w- what was your kind of thinking in terms of what your future would be with a chemical engineering background? I, I mean I had this I guess you'd say naive view uh, because obviously engineering is something that you go to school and you study and then you're an engineer. <laughs> so I had that as my um, my, my paradigm. Mm-hmm. So I figured, well, uh, I'll go to school and get um, get some training on, you know, what is the application of of chemistry to winemaking, and then I'll be a winemaker. As it turns out, that's not really the way that our industry works. Uh, it's a little bit more apprentice based, mm-hmm. um, as if I were becoming an electrician or something like that, uh, which is grand. So my original idea of what was going to happen took a little bit to materialize. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I wanted to do, as I say, is be outside more. Um, I wanted to spend uh, more time um, 
on my feet, moving around, and hopefully have a little bit more balanced work uh, part of my life mm -hmm. from that perspective. Because I don't know, did I really answer the question about the, uh, the history, the background? Absolutely, okay. absolutely. So as you decided that, as you kind of found how it was to enter into wine, tell me about entering into wine then. What was your first step towards, towards becoming a winemaker? Uh, well, the first step while I was working uh, still in my previous career was to go to school. So I spent um, about three years at Chemeketa, commuting back and forth from my home in Hillsboro um, to get both the associates in uh, viticulture and enology because I wanted to I mean, I wasn't sure that I want to be in the vineyard or in the winery or, or do both. Mm -hmm. um, so I spent a good long time commuting back and forth with a very supportive wife, um, both to say, hey, you can spend this much time and it's cool. Um, you know, she has the job with benefits as well. So you'll hear a little bit more about that in the transition. Mm -hmm. um, so I knew that I needed to get uh, experience actually in a winery. So my first harvest was at Shehalem. And I, I think I'm extremely lucky to have gotten to work with uh, both Harry and with Mike Ayers, who was the winemaker at Shehalem at the time, and um, would count him as a great friend, and mm -hmm. he was a great mentor for me. And that was in 2006, so I was in the program in Chemeketa from 2006 to 2009, and, and uh, started with the harvest at that point. So it was, I mean, generally speaking, it was very challenging to go from one career to the other and not be able to enter at the at the professional or the level of responsibility I guess mm -hmm. that I had enjoyed in my previous career uh, so that that was a challenge for me that's mm -hmm. an adjustment um, and it meant that I was able well I, I was fortunate um, that I was able to continue working as an engineer outside of harvest time mm -hmm. uh, because you know, I'm sure you've heard and I don't know, maybe I didn't know this at the time, but hopefully everyone else does. Um, it's easy to get a job during harvest, and it's very, very difficult to get a year-round job mm -hmm. in the industry. So I did harvests in six and seven and eight and nine and ten um, before I was able to get a year-round job in the winery. So during that whole span, I was either in school and engineering, or I was harvest and engineering uh, once the school was finished. That's a lot. It was a lot. Um, yeah, in some ways I feel like um, I'm still not recovered, but that's my own doing by starting my own brand, um, my own business, really. Um, yeah, I mean, I think anyone would say going to school and working full-time is a lot, and maybe I should have taken a few more years to, to recover from that. Uh, Clota would definitely say that. Tell me about your first impressions of Harvest. You, like you said, you mentioned you come from a, a professional background, you have a professional work and you're thinking you're transferring into, into wine. What's your first impression of your kind of first Harvest and, and the work you were doing and, and, the, and the industry itself? Uh, well, no less professional, I guess, to make, make sure that's clear. Um, but my first impression was, holy Mac, this is a lot of work. Um, <laughs> and, and that was fun. Um, and I don't get to do as much of the physical work during harvest now as I used to, and I, I miss that. Mm -hmm. So it's always a challenge during harvest to, to carve out time for, for me to do the physical work instead of um, just managing the harvest mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. um, but it was, I mean, it was exciting and invigorating. And what I, I guess what really struck me, especially working at Shehalem, 
was the sense of community and how how important the I guess spending time with and socializing with your coworkers at the same time harvest was going on. Yeah, I think for for Harry, um, at least I believe this is where that came from. That part of winemaking is equally important uh, to the actual process of making wine. Mm -hmm. And I've learned, I think, a lot about myself in the process of changing my career in in that regard. Like the social interaction is equally important to me mm -hmm. um, in my life. I mean, whether it's from my job or from my personal, uh, you know, non-work part of my mm -hmm. life, it turns out that that's an equally important part of what makes Kevin. Mm -hmm. So, so I, that I didn't realize it at the time, but that really sort of set the stage mm -hmm. and helped me probably decide that, yeah, I'm, I'm continuing on this path and this is where I want to be. Mm -hmm. um, the staff from Shehalem made lunches, uh, I think, most every week. I mean, I, was, I wasn't there for the entirety of Harvest because I was still working at my other job, but um, yeah, it was, a, you know, it, it, was, it was brilliant. Mm -hmm. Really had a great time. You mentioned that you went to Schmeckenen to do both sides of enology and viticulture. You, you weren't sure. Tell me about the, the, the kind of the, what, what appealed to you about both sides and what kind of eventually pushed you on the certain path. Um, I mean, I would say that I've kind of wound up more in the winemaking side, not because I chose that path. I, I, yes and no. What I really wanted to do was both um, and would still like to spend more time in the vineyard. Whether or not that's possible is really just a function of production level. Mm -hmm. um, you know, here, here at Apolloni, I've been making more wine each of the years, each of the vintages that I've been here, than would allow me to really spend much time in the vineyard. Um, so it, it's no problem that Alfredo and I are able to divide the, you know, have this sort of natural division of labor as wine grower for Alfredo and winemaker for Kevin. It's, um, it's worked out well. but. Mm -hmm. Previously, when I worked at Montenor, I was a viticulturalist for a couple of years, as well as assistant winemaker. So, um, yeah, I, I would love to do both. Really, I think that comes back to another reason that I wanted to change my career, which is um, both my parents grew up in Iowa. Mm -hmm. Both grew up on farms. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I really feel strongly about my personal connection to the land and to farming. Mm -hmm. And we used to spend you know, a good chunk of our summers in Iowa every year as kids on my mom's family farm. And that has it's had a, a big impact on me. So I still feel a lot of affinity for, for farming, for farmers, for the Midwest, for that culture, uh, which has obviously changed over the years. Uh, it's probably more, interestingly, I'd say it's more in Oregon the farming culture here in the wine industry is probably more like the family farming culture was in the Midwest two generations ago. Mm -hmm. Because now most family farms are family farms. I mean, there are thousands of acres. Right. Um, but when my mom grew up and my grandfather and my great grandfather were farming, it was, um, you know, it was they had their own cattle and their own pigs and their own chickens and they had us. You know, a few hundred acres, and, mm -hmm. and that made them a living. Mm -hmm. A true family farm. Yeah, a true family farm. 
So you mentioned Montenor. Tell me about how you how you found yourself at Montenor and, and that kind of interesting dual role of being viticulturist and assistant winemaker at such an interesting place. Tell me about how you found yourself there and about kind of the role you you, you carved out for yourself. Uh, okay. The I mean that was my first working at Montenor was my first year-round uh, full-time job. So we can uh, if you're interested or however this goes or whatever we can fill in the the in between uh, sure. at some point. Sure. But, um, I found myself there very fortunately, I guess. I was out sort of knocking on doors and doing some tasting. Maybe I took an afternoon off of uh, off my day job or something, don't remember exactly. And I was on my way home to Hillsboro and Montenor is close. And I thought, I'm gonna get one more stop in. And uh, so I called in just before the tasting room closed. I said, this is my CV and I am interested. I'm just looking for uh, a job in the cellar. And um, the, the tasting room uh, person took it back to Ben and Stephen, and who were the winemakers at the time, together. And um, they weren't available, but had a look at the resume and got back to me wow. um, just a few weeks later. So had an interview, and and um, yeah, and that so that that was at the how. Um, I really enjoyed working for Rudy. Um, he. You know, his focus on biodynamics and biodynamic winemaking is, um, I don't know if singular is the right word, but it's or, or linear. I mean, it's not a linear thing to do biodynamic farming, but his focus is, is keen, I guess you might say. So um, I really enjoyed that. I wanted to learn more about it. I would still love to learn more about it. Um, it is, I'm sure he'll tell us, uh, a lifetime of learning. Um, so while there, it was um, Ben Thomas, uh, Stephen Weber were the winemakers, and myself. And so I had the opportunity, I guess, to um, to help out where the need was greatest. And so I saw a need to help Rudy out in the vineyard, and um, again, kind of bring a little bit more analytics to the the day to day or the seasonal operations and and um, gather some more data, provide it to him, um, and get some more eyes in the vineyard because at that time uh, he was super busy selling the wine. Uh, so hopefully it was a win-win, uh, I feel like it was. Um, and we spent some good time together in the vineyard and then I was helping uh, Ben and Stephen with whatever needed to be done in the cellar. And, um, as we tried to focus a little bit more on a few small batch uh, winemaking projects, then again I was able to to focus on the the, the smaller macro bin sized mm -hmm. fermentations and and the barrels and follow them all the way through. Well, so, I'll ask, I want to ask more about that, but I will back up for a second before we go on. So tell me um, about the what's well in the in between. So you Shahalem okay. was your first stop. Where else between between there and Montenor? Um, I may miss. Uh, a thing or two. I mean, I had to do, um, I had to. I mean, I got to do through Chemeketa a, um, I'll call it cooperative work experience. Mm -hmm. So that was required as part of the program to get, uh, to get the degrees, which I wanted to get, the, the actual associate's degrees. And um, so Shehalem, that was, that was one. I think I also was able to fill that um, need working a little bit uh, with Laurent and his team when they were in McMinnville. Um, so that was like, again, CWE, it was like a, an afternoon a week or a day and a half a week, I think it was for six weeks, something mm -hmm. like that. So not a lot, 
Um, but it was, at least wasn't during harvest, so I got to see a little bit more of the, of the non-harvest mm-hmm. um, activities. Uh, and then I worked um, with Scott Scholl at Raptor Ridge for uh, a couple of harvests, and uh, he was working or making his wine, I guess you'd say, with Dave Bruders. Mm-hmm. Carlton Cellars at the time, this is 2007, um, and eight in Carlton. And I made wine in my uh, garage or garage, as uh, my wife and I like to say the Irish way, um, in Hillsborough during that time as well, because I just wanted to practice. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to practice going and finding some fruit, talking to the grower, trying to figure out, you know, how are we going to farm this? How much am I going to take? When are you picking? But just kind of do all the process that I could. Um, and then I had friends helping me because I was working harvest somewhere else. And so I had to have someone do punch downs in the evening. Um, I could do them before I left in the morning, but um, so that was fun having some friends help out in the garage and, and made actually not an insignificant amount of wine at home in seven, eight, nine. Um, and then I worked also at Shea um, for one harvest. And at that point, the, the advice that I had gotten was, um, it's great you're getting these harvests, but if you really want to get the full-time job, maybe you should go down under. You should do a southern hemisphere rotation, mm-hmm. um, and then you could get two harvests in a vintage, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or in a year, calendar year. So uh, 2010, I worked at Rockburn uh, with Malcolm Reeves Francis um, and in, the, in our spring, so their harvest in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and that, that was, again, Mike Ayers, who comes from New Zealand, I was able to help me do some networking to help find that job, so that was great. And then I worked in Burgundy uh, in 2010. So at that time, uh, it was great to come back that summer and um, my engineering job wanted me back. Uh, I said, I'm gonna paint the house this summer and uh, I just need a break. Um, Be home a little bit more uh, with my wife and before I headed off to uh, Burgundy. So to work in Burgundy, um, to work in France was a dream come true. Where, I guess where, early Kevin sort of inter- intersects with uh, wine Kevin is that I studied French when I was, you know, it was my chosen foreign language when I was going through school. And I knew I would travel to France at some stage, so I even took elective, you know, an extra class or two in college at the university level just to kind of keep mm-hmm. it fresh mm-hmm. enough. Uh, and I had tra- traveled on vacation, but really I thought I'd, I want to live in France at some stage. So. Yeah, it was only for a few months, uh, but it was a dream come true to, to be living and working in France, speaking the language, getting to know the culture better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, I mean, fantastic. I'd love to do it again. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, sign me up. <laughs> so that was a place called Domaine Lejeune, um, and it's in Pomard, a small family-owned place. And they... This is going a little bit more in the technical direction, but they, at the time, I, I don't know that they do now, but at the time they did not own a destemmer. So 100%, 100% of all the wines made every year, cold, warm, didn't matter, were whole cluster. Wow. Um, and that was really interesting. Totally opened my eyes. I mean, the wines were beautiful, very long-lived. Um, and 2010 was a cool vintage there, so it was a challenge. Uh, I mean, I know it was a challenge for... Uh, for the family to get through it, um, and I, you know, I think the wines turned out well. So uh, that was 2010, and then we pick up at the mm-hmm. the end of 2010, and I'm 
cruising around looking for a job and happened into uh, to Montenor and, and made the acquaintance of Ben and Steven. So sure. that, yeah, that fills in the gaps, but um, it, you know, it was a it was a journey, and that also means I mean, kind of going back to the transition. I, I mean, it, I love to travel, and obviously my wife is from Ireland, so there's that history of travel, and uh, between the two of us, for me personally, to have gone to Ireland and met her, and the Irish as a as a culture love traveling, and they've had to over the years, so so it all fits, right? But it was difficult uh, for Claude and I because. She has, you know, her job is here now, and so she's working full time. So mm -hmm. I was um, gone for a good chunk of 2010, and the the benefit to us was she got to come to New Zealand then at the end, and we got to hire a Juicy Cruiser, a little camper van, and do three weeks traveling around. Mm -hmm. And then she was able to get some more time off, and and my mother and my grand, my mother and my aunt rather came uh, to the end of harvest to Burgundy. And we traveled around and met Clota in the south of France and had a couple more weeks uh, to travel. So great opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So you'd say uh, emotionally or relationship challenging mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and financially challenging too. I mean, this whole thing for anyone starting their wine industry career is, you know, the pay is not great. It's difficult, challenging to get started. So, um, yeah. That was then. That's the history. Those were the challenges. It's a lot of different places to have worked, a lot of different kind of philosophies to have seen. I'm curious, as you started making your own wine, what was your kind of your thought in terms of philosophy style? Like, what did you want to make wine? What did you want your wine to be as you were making it your own? I think, as a lot of winemakers say, and it's I, I kind of feel like it's a cliche now, but. Um, a lot of winemakers in Oregon say, well, we want to make Burgundian-style wines, but really, what does that mean? And the wines in Burgundy change from vintage to vintage, just like they do here. Um, you know, having lived in Burgundy and done that work, I got to, as part of the program that gave me the, the visa and the right to work and that sort of thing, we got to do a tremendous amount of tasting mm -hmm. from old vintages and new vintages and, and different producers up and down the, the coat. And, in my mind, in my sensory mind, I have, you know, I'll recognize something, oh, this reminds me of Burgundy. But it's not always the same type of wine or style. Um, but there's something kind of ethereal about it for me. And I guess, so, you know, I want to make wines like Burgundy. What does that mean? So that's, that's one part of it. And other than that, I, I was, I mean, I purposely tried not to be too, I don't know if dogmatic is the word, but I tried not to be too set about, oh, I really want to make wines this way. I want to use only fruit from here. I want to do things this way because I knew that it wasn't my wine that was being made when I started in this career. It was someone else's. And so how the wines, how the owner or the brand want the wines to turn out is really the driver. So I feel like for much of my career, much of my focus, that's the goal. It's mm -hmm. to, to really ask the right questions, make observations about what types of wine and style that people like that I'm either working for 
or the people who are selling the wine that I'm making or speaking with the customers and mm -hmm. really trying to see what turns them on. Mm -hmm. We have to be true to our site, um, whether it was at Montenor or now Apolloni um, or any of the other uh, locations, mm -hmm. but then make some decisions uh, within, within the confines of where the fruit's from. So, you know, that, I guess that's, that's sort of the, the base or the set the stage. Over time then, over the years, I thought, well, this is the wine I like, this is the style I like, and, and when I have the opportunity, either within the wines I was making, let's say at Montenor, mm -hmm. I had the opportunity to work on these small batches. So I could say, well, this one I want to make a little bit more in this style because I think that's what I'd like to do. And this one a little bit more in that style because I think, oh, this block is going to, to show a little bit better in that way. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's been a real gradual sort of a thing. I think a lot of people, at least when I've uh, heard them talk or talked to them, maybe came at it a little bit more like, I'm moving to Oregon because I'm going to make wine like this. Mm -hmm. And that's great if you're starting your own brand, but um, at least for me to get started, that wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about the, that kind of balance because, like as you mentioned, you're making most of the wine you've made have been for, has been for someone else, has mm -hmm. been someone else's. So tell me about you. Talked about kind of observation and question. How did you? At what point do you feel that kind of confidence to be able to take someone, ask the question, and then take that into practice and, and create a wine in the style that you think the person is asking for? How do you kind of learn that process of? Vineyard observation, questions of, of other people, and then I'm. This is the one I'm going to create because of those because of those factors. Does that make sense? Uh, almost. <laughs> right. uh, so, if I, at what point do you feel kind of feel the confidence to make a wine in the style that you think I'm going to appreciate as as the person making the decision? Um, well, I suppose to be fully confident, I'd have to make wine for you a few years mm -hmm. <laughs> and get your feedback. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, you know, I have clients that I've worked with for. Uh, seven years, I guess, or this will be the eighth vintage coming up. So I feel like I, you know, I have that confidence now and I've had it for, for several years. Mm -hmm. But that's, I mean, that's not really what you're asking. I mean, the, at what point could I have begun talking to someone and said, oh, well, I can make you that wine. Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. is what you like. It's, I mean, I think it's asking enough questions, maybe tasting some wine uh, with the person. I mean, fortunately, most of my clients have been happy to, you know, bring the grapes from their vineyard and, and say, hey, make me some great wine. <laughs> and it hasn't been as, I don't know, in-depth or analytical, mm -hmm. uh, to go back to that word, where we've sat down with a lineup of, you know, three vintages and five producers and up and down the valley and, mm -hmm. and this sort of thing and, and really tried to zero in. I, I personally... Philosophically, I really feel like that would be time well spent, but the biggest, the biggest difference in the Pinot Noirs that I make within a vintage or from vintage to vintage is where the fruit's from. Mm -hmm. that, that is ultimately the driver. Um, and this is the terroir that, that we as an industry talk a lot about, and it, you know, it's been made evident over the centuries in Burgundy and other places, and I, I think it's becoming, it, it is pretty evident in Oregon uh, with all of our, the different parts of the valley and how mm. different the wines are. And and then within the sort of the next biggest influence is Mother Nature. So 
the wines this year will necessarily be different from the wines last year. And even though the growing seasons might be pretty similar, it's mm -hmm. amazing to me every year how different the wines turn out. So, mm -hmm. so philosophically, kind of circle back there, the, it is helpful and instructive and useful to have those conversations and to look at wines together and really try and zero in on something. But at the end of the vintage or the end of the growing season, we're going to do our best mm -hmm. and to make things in a certain style, but without, you know, there's a risk of over manipulation and not having the wines be as good or be as true to the vintage and as true to what they could have been mm -hmm. um, to force things stylistically. So, so my philosophy is a little more hands-off um, to let the wines become what they're going to become. Mm -hmm. And within the terroir and the vintage restrictions, guide the wines in a certain direction. So this has turned into a long answer. This is an excellent answer. But uh, so, so the confidence to talk to folks and say, I can make the wine is, I mean, I guess, yeah, it's okay because I know I have so much influence and I try to impress upon people. I can do so much, but there is a limit because of the vintage mm -hmm. and obviously people know what the, what the site is going to do uh, or hopefully they do because that's where they're sourcing their fruit or they plant their vineyard. That, was that tough for you as an engineer to, to kind of be more hands-off? Uh, well what's tough for me as an engineer uh, it's, it's become uh, a lot easier but man there are so many freaking variables in winemaking <laughs> it is unbelievable and the, the number which are controllable are like infinitesimal. <laughs> and I think we kid ourselves, any winemaker kids themselves, that they really think they can put their arms around a vintage and make it into what they want it to be. Mm -hmm. um, so it drove me nuts initially. Like how, I mean not like to the point of frustration, but just working harvest and going, man, you know, but but, but, but it's not this way, or but, but, but it's not that way, or I, you know, why can't the grapes just be like this? Because then I could have done my trial and got the answer I wanted or got the information that I was looking for. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just not that way. And I, <laughs> it, often in my mind, I've gone back to, well, gosh, what was it like for my, for my grandfather, my great-grandfather? What, you know, what was it like for a farmer who's, entire livelihood, the, the ability of their family to survive the next winter mm -hmm. financially um, was down to farming. Mm -hmm. and, and so this family farm had a diverse set of crops. You know, maybe the animals are for eating and the crops are for selling and you know, so you have your cash and you have your food, but every year Mother Nature is dictating to some degree how much you get and how good it is and then there are the economic forces that drive how much money you get for what you've farmed. So mm -hmm. I, I've thought a lot about that over the years. Like, man, I think it's hard. What was it like for them? Mm -hmm. And it's not that my family won't eat if the wine doesn't turn out. It's that the wines might not be as good and they'll be a lot harder to sell and they might take a long time uh, mm -hmm. you know, to work through a vintage. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, that's, yeah. It, just the amount of variables, it's unbelievable. <laughs> and they're, they're just not 
they're not things you can control. Mm -hmm. So, uh, what's next for you after Montenor then? What, what's, what's the sort of the next step on, on the on the process there? Uh, so that was now it'll be eight vintages ago, and so that was coming here to Apollonie. Mm -hmm. So, at at that time, I. Um, I, I was doing a lot of thinking. Um, I mean, wouldn't necessarily call it soul searching, but I, okay, here I was. I landed in the wine industry. I had a year round full-time job. Was it my dream? What was different about it from my dream? What would make it closer to the dream or the goal of working in the wine industry? Um, and as I said, I wanted to be more outside and, and be in the vineyard. And so I was able to work my way into those roles and get the experience. And then I realized, or what sort of the next step was, you know, what are the five things in Kevin's next job that, um, that I figured, oh, I'm gonna tick these boxes or, or try and find a job that would meet these mm -hmm. needs and desires. Um, and one of those was a smaller winery, preferably family owned, that I could work directly with, directly with the owners um, to sort of execute the vision and the plan. Because as an engineer, I worked in small consulting firm, but I also worked in a corporation. And at, you know, at this point, working at Montenor, I could look back and see that a lot of what frustrated me about engineering wasn't necessarily the engineering, it wasn't necessarily the, um, the sitting at the computer and, and being, you know, brain Kevin, it was, it was the corporate layers and layers and, and how that didn't, I just really didn't feel like it suited me. Mm -hmm. um, so fortunately, um, at the time that I was kind of putting this mental list together, then I learned that um, Alfredo and Lorene were looking for a new winemaker and had a conversation with Alfredo, a couple of conversations, came out to see the place, um, chatted with them over lunch and and just tried to learn a little bit more and felt like, hey, this is a good fit mm -hmm. uh, for me and he felt for them. Mm -hmm. So uh, we embarked on sort of a journey together because it's been, it's been like I say, quite a while now. Um, and I feel very fortunate to have found uh, another winery in kind of my hood. So I'm not making a huge commute. Uh, not that I have anything or would have any issue with uh, working in other AVAs, but it's, uh, it's nice to be near home mm -hmm. and to be sort of in the community where I live. Mm -hmm. And it, it sort of matches in a way the, the nascent or nascent, um, what's my style? What kind of wines do I want to make? And that would have been a little bit more elegant, lighter, less extracted, more, I don't know, uh, cooler mm -hmm. of cool climate uh, style wines. And and we are here at Apollonia at the moment, and this is the north end of the North Valley, and I think we're the northernmost vineyard and winery in the Willamette Valley Appalachian. And so, we, you know, it's a challenge in a cool year. And, and that's great, because these are the types of wines that I think, in the back of my mind, I wanted to make. It's more Chambou or Houssini or, or Volnay. It's, it's not uh, more a, a bigger, bolder, mm -hmm section of the valley, mm -hmm. although I like those wines too. <laughs> so, uh, I don't, 
I think that answered the question. When you when you when you came here, what was kind of your you mentioned kind of growing together? What was kind of your understanding of where Apollone was and maybe where where they wanted to be and what what your role was going to be in the in that growth? Uh, good question. I mean, we didn't really talk about it in those terms. It was um, you know it was a discussion about what we would like to grow the production a bit, and we have X number of acres, and we can sell some fruit or we can not. We can buy some fruit, because uh, we do make some uh, bigger red varietals where we buy fruit from Eastern Washington. Um, and so, so it was pretty, pretty open-ended. It wasn't, you know, something that defined. What did you, as you, you, you mentioned the, the, the location of this north, north of the North Valley. Uh, as you started to kind of learn the vineyard and learn the grapes here, what were, what were your kind of impressions of what you were working with? Um, what were my impressions of what I was working with? I guess first it was, oh my gosh, we're making how many varietals? Um, <laughs> and then it was like, oh, this is, that's fun. This mm -hmm. is a great opportunity because I, I hadn't made wine with Merlot or Cab or Sangiovese or Nebbiolo. Um, Viognier, Muscat, I mean, we've done all these different varietals since then. Um, but the estate stuff is a little more than half Pinot Noir, a good chunk of Pinot Gris, Chardonnay, and Pinot Blanc. And I was really excited about the Pinot Blanc in particular because I had a real curiosity. I had really enjoyed um, Pinot Blancs that I had had, but not had the opportunity to make it. And so, so that was exciting. And eventually started doing some barrel fermented Chardonnay, um, which had been something that Stephen and I had wanted to do for several years at Montenor, but the vineyard where we were supposed to get our fruit frosted out just enough that we didn't get any because we were like the newbies uh, contractually, so um, that, that's been a lot of fun to, to do that. Otherwise, I mean, it's, it's a unique site because we kind of on this ridge north of Forest Grove, we don't get the, the rains don't come as early. So it's like the, the high pressure holds in this ridge for an extra couple of weeks, pretty much every year, as Oregon turns to rain, mm -hmm. which is really fortunate because we hit our bud break and our bloom and our lag phase a week or two later mm -hmm. than the rest of the valley. So it's, I mean, that's really been the biggest learning and it was, I mean, mm -hmm. I guess you'd say like clockwork, but then I've just said that Mother Nature doesn't work that way. <laughs> um, but it's amazingly consistent, and mm -hmm. that was the biggest impact to me initially because I can drive from Hillsborough and the Tualatin Valley in the spring and in the summer sometimes, but really it's obvious as the weather's changing in the fall. I can be in fog and really cold there and as soon as I start up the hill to this ridge poof all that cloud cover is uh, fog or cloud cover it's it's behind me and I'm here in the sunshine and it's the second or third or even fourth week of October and I just am like wow this is this is tremendous you talked about the, the the varietals you had never worked with all the all the reds all the all the different things uh, tell me about the learning process of, of, of making working with grapes you hadn't worked with before and, and sources you weren't familiar with and kind of learning the, the style of making working with Merlot and Sangiovese, etc. Right. Um, well, I guess fortunate in a couple of different ways. 
Alfredo's farmed this site and made wine here and purchased many of those varietals uh, since 99, uh, I believe, and maybe started purchasing the, that fruit, uh, some of those varietals from Eastern Washington up the gorge in 2006 or seven. So mm -hmm. the first couple of years doing those varietals, I was happy to say, okay, what's the normal procedure? Uh, how have you typically executed this? And, and just kind of row in because again, I, I've really tried not to, I mean, working for someone else and their brand, I think it's really important to be sensitive to what their vision is. What their vision is for the story, for the marketing, for the wine styles, for what varietals they want to make, mm -hmm. all these kinds of things. So I'm, I'm the vessel, or I'm the messenger, if you, if you will, as the winemaker to, um, to help the Apollonians realize what it is that they want to make. And that's my job as the winemaker mm -hmm. uh, for someone else or for a custom crush client. So, and, and I think my engineering background really helps with that because engineers work for clients and clients have a vision and a project. They want to build a winery, they want to plant a vineyard, they want to build a factory, whatever it might be. The engineer is there to write down the requirements, what's the you know, what's the goal? Mm -hmm. These are the things we need to construct. This is the timeline we're going to do it in and then execute. Mm -hmm. So, um, the first, I can say the first couple of years was absorbing as much of that as possible. And another big help was Chuck Wagner. Um, he was a classmate of mine at Chemeketa, fellow engineer as well. He and Alfredo have worked together since 2009 or eight, I think. Um, so Chuck's here, has been here every harvest, helping out to some level, mm -hmm. and it's been fantastic to have him. And and that's been and it's been really valuable. I mean, I value have valued his input and his um, you know, his professional prof professionalism, his mm -hmm. help with the winemaking. I mean, it's and so oh sure last year or I remember three years ago or there was this really cold year. It must have been 2011. Oh well, and he's like like. All this knowledge comes out, and some great ideas. Or, you know, in the first couple of years, like, okay, this is what we should do. Great, mm -hmm. let's do it. So you had talked earlier about making your own kind of garage wine. At what point did that become more professionalized? What point did you start your own brand? Uh, my wife and I started Lerondonay with the 2014 vintage, and that meant that uh, because the reds that we make here at Apollonia are almost always over vintage, so that meant that we would be bottling that in 2016. So that's when we started selling wine. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, um, well, how did that start? You know, I always had in the back of my mind, oh, it'd be fun, I'd enjoy having my own brand someday. Um, but I hadn't sort of decided to jump at it, and we can blame David Polite, um, my friend at Carlton Hill Vineyard, uh, another classmate at Chemeketa, um, great guy, um, I love him to death. I mean, it's, and I know you've talked to him. I don't know what he said, but I should go watch. <laughs> uh, but a super character. And so, so Dave, thanks, uh, gave me a ring on, uh, let's say a Thursday in September and said, Kevin, you've always been bugging me to sell you some fruit. I'm like, yeah. He says, well, I finally have some for you. I was like, that's great, but Dave, it's, you know, middle of September. He's like, yeah, we're picking next Thursday. I'm like, 
Dave, like, <laughs> come on. He's like, no, no, you and Claude talk it over. Give me a call on Monday. You know, whatever you, I've got, you know, up to this amount and, you know, whatever you guys like to do. And I had been bugging Dave for years. Like, I'd really like to make fruit from your vineyard because I have, you know, we kind of went through the litany of where have I worked and, and uh, who's, you know, whose wines have I helped make. And, and there, it, you know, it's quite a diverse selection of parts of the valley, but there was something about Dave's wines from his vineyard that really spoke to me over the years. And it didn't matter if it was a hot year, um, like six or nine, or cool year, 10, 11. I suppose we tried those at, at that stage together. Um, that site really speaks to me. And so Claude and I talked it over and we said, well, this is the phone call that really we were waiting for mm -hmm. because that's the fruit that I wanted to work with. It's like, I suppose, if you were in Burgundy and a neighbor called and said, you know, I want to sell my two rolls of rows of, uh, you know, this Premier Cru vineyard in Chambol Moussigny. I'm like, well, uh, can we make some turns? Because <laughs> it's going to take a few years to pay for this. And like, but you, like, it's the phone call. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. that, that was what, that was what uh, launched Laurent was being able to make fruit from Dave's vineyard. And then, in addition to that, was in the back of my mind, I had always thought, hey, if I ever do have my own brand, what white wine would I want to make? And when I met Cloda in Ireland, uh, kind of her go-to white was Sauvignon Blanc. And I thought, okay, this is not gonna be easy to find, um, but I'd like to make some Sauvignon Blanc because that's kind of a way to honor um, another part of my journey into wine, which was living in Ireland, and we should talk about that at some point. Um, and so I didn't have to think that long, fortunately, and uh, another Dave, uh, Dave Gruders, who um, he had the vineyard, what's it, Russell Gruders Vineyard, and he had Sauvignon Blanc planted. And I knew he was making some, and I just said, hey Dave, is there any chance that we could buy some fruit from you? And he was happy to oblige. Again, we'd known each other since I worked at his place in 2007, and he's another great, great friend and mm -hmm. great guy. So that was Laurent Denet. Uh, so the 14 Pinot, and then we made 15 Pinot, because again, that would be in barrel for a while. Mm. Um, having not sold it yet or gotten any feedback from people, uh, and made some Sauvignon Blanc in 2015 as well from, from Dave Gruder's Vineyard. Once you, once you make that decision and then that phone call comes and you're, you, you have this, you're, you're going to make wine under your own name, tell me about the, the process then at that point of deciding on a name, deciding on a label, deciding on kind of a strategy, uh, especially as you're making wine, still making wine for someone else as well. Tell me right. kind of the process of getting La Rondonnet started. Uh, well, it was a lot of fun to, to have the opportunity to think about all those things for myself. Mm -hmm. um, and it was also... It, it turned out to be a lot that I knew very little about. I mean, I had always been around the branding discussions and the marketing discussions and, of course, the winemaking and the viticulture and that kind of stuff, but I'd been around those discussions for other people for many years at that point, and so I had kind of an idea in my mind, well, I want to be careful about having a story that I can relate to and maybe a story that other people can relate to and one that's reflective of me personally. I mean, really, again, kind of going back to the interpersonal um, part of the industry, and I guess 
something I have learned again through the wine industry about myself is I, I do really like to talk to people and I like to hear their stories and I like to share mine if they're interested. Um, and I like to see the light bulbs come on. And so like, I've kind of learned all of that about having um, the brand and maybe there was a little bit of the beginning of that realization when we were setting up uh, La Rondonet because we sat down ourselves, we sat down with friends, we you know, poured over lists of potential names for you know over glasses of wine and mm -hmm. and it was you know it was pretty fun but you're thinking this is like you got to get it right <laughs> or right enough so it's pretty daunting and yeah so that, that was the process how we chose Laurent Denae was I think as anyone will uh, admit at least privately you need to find a a brand or a name and a story that matches you and then you need to go make sure that that brand is available. Um, so there were other ideas, I don't even remember how more likely they were than Rondonet, but this was fit the story and the idea mm -hmm. and hopefully it's something that people relate to and it was available. Mm -hmm. So that has to be part of, that's, that's the, the necessary logistical uh, part of it. Mm -hmm. And so for, for me, the story of Laurent Denet, uh, it's a word that means a walk or a trek in French. And there are two parts, you might say, to the story. And the first part is that Cloda and I met in a hill walking club in Ireland. So hiking, hill walking, whichever culture uh, Laurent Denet describes that activity, it's very important to us mm -hmm. um, individually and together. And the, the other part of it, and maybe the part that more, um, I guess, it's more today and having this conversation and how I or anyone else wound up in the industry here in Oregon is that, you know, if you were to talk to, interview friends of mine from high school or people I grew up with or probably my parents, um, no one would have said, oh, Kevin's going to be a winemaker someday. I mean, this was the farthest thing from my head, from anyone else's uh, thought process is just like growing up in Colorado this was not a um, just, you know it's not a career path mm -hmm. that anyone would have thought about maybe they would now uh, in Colorado and certainly people would have it perhaps in their radar somewhere if they're growing up in Oregon but um, really my rondonet in life is a metaphor because when it's as analytical as I am looking back over my life when we were talking about the branding and had this wine that we were making and was um, just looking back over my life, like when it came time for big decisions, including, yes, Dave, uh, I'd love to buy some fruit from your vineyard um, and, and put it on my own label and start my own business. I haven't made, I've, I do all the analysis, but when I've made the big decisions, it hasn't been the logical choice. <laughs> so well, where should I go to school? What should I study? Okay, I'm graduating from university. What job should I take? I looked at all of those in an analytical way, but never did I make the, the logical choice, as analytical as I am. And that really had stuck with me before this came up. And then I thought about this decision. I thought, well, here's another example. Here I go again. I'm, I'm choosing the path that 
leads off into the trees here, and I'm not sure exactly where it's going, but I am taking this decision because I think when I get to the other side of the forest, I'll have a lot more opportunity than if I went down to the end of the street and turned left and took that job or went to this place or moved there or studied that. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, uh, it, it has been a, another great part of my randonnée in life, my adventure. Mm -hmm. um, so I know, that's kind of our story. I think it's something that everyone can relate to in their own way, mm -hmm. which is great. I, you know, I'm happy that people can do that. We all have our own, our own journey in life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I, I have a couple more questions about Laurent and but let's back up for a second. Let's talk about Ireland. How, how, how did you end up in Ireland? Um, my previous job um, as an engineer had opportunities to work as an expat abroad. And my friend John Morgan, uh, who was my first boss and a great mentor in that career uh, when I first moved to Oregon. He had taken his family um, three separate occasions uh, and moved them overseas for assignments as an engineer working for, I guess, two different companies. And just to hear the stories that he told and how big an impression it made on him personally and on uh, his wife, Bridget, um, I'm sure we'll learn in the years ahead like what the impact was on their kids, but it just like all it, the richness that it brought to his life and the stories he could tell and how much fun it was to get to know another culture and make friends there and really kind of learn about what made people tick somewhere else. It, it like really stuck, stuck with me. So um, I had started looking around for opportunities to work abroad with the company as an expat, and lo and behold, uh, in fact, was this, I, I house sat for them actually. They moved to Israel for a year, and so I got to house sit for them and, and heard lots more stories at that point. And then they came back for a year, and then they were on Ireland, and he was like, hey, I need another engineer, I can't hire anybody, the economy's too great. And I need someone with experience that can come in and boom, immediately get to work on this project. I've <laughs> talked to a few other people, but you're maybe the only one that's able to come right now. Mm -hmm. And I said, sure, let's do it. And so I got to, to live in Ireland. So I was there for three years. Uh, it was meant to be 18 months, maybe a year. Then it was two, then it was two and a half, then it was three. And at that point, I was like, okay, this is great, but I, I think I want to go home now and see where this is going to take me. And, uh, and so, that was the, the time in, in Ireland. Um, I'm not, you, you're probably wondering, well, how did I meet Cloda? And Okay, so um, a friend that I knew, I met my freshman year in college, had studied in Copenhagen, had dated a guy there who knew someone in Ireland who had a friend that worked in Intel, <laughs> who had another friend who was in a hillwalking club. So I had lunch with the friend of the friend of the friend uh, one day at work, and she said, "Yeah, uh, you should, you know, contact this person um, and find out about their hill walking club, and maybe you can join up since that's what you like to do, mm -hmm. right? Because I'd kind of put it out there. I want to spend some time out outdoors and mm -hmm. and hike and camp and backpack and do whatever I can do uh, with my free time. And so I went along to this hill walking club called the Bootleggers and um, met Cloda through that. So." 
it, you know, it, it's that, um, it was, it's brilliant. I love the way that the story works, but it's about, it's the people and the relationships mm -hmm. again. It's the friends who know someone and, oh, uh, gosh, you're looking for this or you're looking for that or you like to do this. I think I know someone. Mm -hmm. Maybe they can help. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's another part of the rondonnet. Mm -hmm. And your willingness to say yes and, and try it. Sure. Yeah, I'm, I, yeah, maybe not every time. But, but generally, yes. So, uh, I'm curious, as you're, as you're, you're, you're working at Apolloni, you're, you're, you have La Rondonet started, you're also working with Custom Crush, as you mentioned. I'm curious about, as you're handling that many different winemaking kind of tasks, or winemaking, how are you keeping, how are things separated? How, how are you making your wines unique from Apolloni and, and Custom Crush unique from each other? And, you know, how, how do you kind of manage the different kinds of winemaking styles all going on at the same time? Good question. I, going back to my philosophy, I think, in many respects, or in the majority of the winemaking, I don't have to worry about it because the sites, the vineyards, uh, the terroir speaks for itself. So if I was making uh, David Polite's wines from Carlton Hill, I'd have to think a little bit more carefully about that to make sure that they were different, different from Laurent Denet or more distinct, let's mm -hmm. say. Uh, but as it is, my custom crush clients have vineyards kind of around the valley. Um, and I source my fruit from Yamhill Carlton, client, different client, different vineyard in the Yamhill Carlton, uh, other folks here in the Tualatin Valley. Um, so majority don't have to worry about it because of the mm -hmm. site speaking differently. Mm -hmm. And then it's trying to make the wine in a style that appeals to each person and their palate. And I think once I start thinking about that, well then I'm making different decisions already to that will, will differentiate the wines. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've experimented a lot here at Apolloni with techniques that I use with Laurent Denet and techniques that I learned elsewhere to try and see what fits mm -hmm. or diversify what we have to work with when it comes time for blending. Um, so when making a big volume like Apolloni, I can do a little bit of everything, I guess you'd say, because it, it's possible that this one technique or this one ferment could become a single bottling, but it's most likely going to be a few different fermentations that had a few different techniques or were picked a little bit different time. Maybe they had a little cluster, maybe they didn't. Uh, maybe they were aged in new wood or neutral. And so that all becomes part of the blend and the, the interesting, making the wines more interesting and hopefully better. So I guess it's sight, going back to that again. And then as we talked about what is the style that someone is after. Mm -hmm. And once I start working with fruit from their site and thinking about their style, that wine's gonna wind up different. Uh, for Laurent Denet, uh, going back to Domaine Lejeune, I do a more significant portion of whole cluster and we make a tiny amount of wine. I mean, Claude and I maximum have made a couple hundred cases in a year. Um, but it's really three barrels of Pinot, it has been. Uh, from Carlton Hill every vintage and maybe 60 to 90 cases of Sauvignon Blanc. So it's it's been super small. Mm -hmm. And and just to close out that discussion, it's the the starting the business was the easy decision. 
the getting the business set up and actually figuring out how to do it has been incredibly difficult mm -hmm. because as I mentioned it's a bunch of things that I know nothing about I wish I would have taken accounting in college but man I was too busy doing economics and two different kinds of engineering and some <laughs> uh, environmental courses and it was just Unfortunately, it didn't ever get fit in, but man, that would have been helpful. <laughs> or a marketing class, or a business class, or how about some class on taxes? I mean, <laughs> these things are, and we've all had to do it in the industry, like learn these things, mm -hmm. or learn the other side of the business, if that's uh, our background, mm -hmm. is more suited to that kind of stuff. So I have, I mean, people have asked me, would you start a business again? Do you like owning your own business? And the answer is, I do really like owning my own business, and I would do it again. It's easily 10 times more work than I thought it was gonna be, but I've learned more in a, about sort of the way the world works or the way business works mm -hmm. in a small amount of time than, than anything else in my career. So I wish everyone could own their own business at some point in their lives or work directly for someone in a small business to really learn that and preferably early in one's career because that knowledge is is it's just super helpful tell me about tell me about selling wine uh, you, you're, you're selling wine obviously with Apolloni you're obviously selling your own wine what are the challenges when it comes to selling wine especially now when it is actually your your name on the label or your your label uh, well I thought that it would be my least favorite part of the whole business um, to be honest about it, would be the selling of wine. Mm -hmm. I, I hadn't, probably hadn't done my own brand earlier or pushed harder because of that. Mm -hmm. um, did I turn off a mic? Um, so I, I guess I had heard lots of stories about how difficult it was to go to other markets and sell in, in distribution. Um, but I hadn't heard so many stories about the talking directly to the consumer mm -hmm. and it I don't know if I learned it in Ireland or if there was always some part of me that was um, a real social person and likes to talk um, I mean part of my heritage is a lot of other people is, is Irish um, so I love talking to people about wine I love hearing their stories about wine what they like what got them interested in it um, how they came to show up at a tasting and hear about us or like Pinot Noir, what do they think of Sauvignon Blanc, all these kinds of things. And so um, it's actually turned out to be a lot of fun for me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't expect that to be. And even we, again, because we're so small, I don't have a distributor in another state and have to be on the phone with them or make market trips or do those sorts, sorts of things for La Rondonais. So um, maybe I haven't seen the more difficult side of the business. We self-distribute in in Oregon and mm -hmm. so I've been fortunate to make friends and acquaintances with people who work in bars or restaurants and hopefully they'll all come out of COVID uh, successfully and we'll be back on on their wine lists or back on their shelves and and basically it's just meeting people and if if they like our wine which comes from a very specific site that speaks to me mm -hmm. then I think we're we're going to have a good relationship. Mm -hmm. It's it's just a matter of finding those those fits. 
You bring up COVID. Obviously, we're talking to you in, in the midst of COVID. Um, tell me about how it's affected uh, your work and, and sort of maybe how it's affected, how you're looking ahead, how it's affecting your kind of view of the future. Um, because it changes every day, it's kind of hard to say um, what I or anyone else, I think, in the industry thinks of the future. I mean, I think um, I mean, when it first sort of broke and happened, or was happening, and we were approaching shutdown time, uh, here at Apollonia, I think we were in a fortunate place because we were just finishing our first big bottling of the year. This is in the middle of March. And my cellar master, Morgan, was headed off to New Zealand a couple days later to work vintage down there. So I think fortunately for her, fortunately for us, the timing worked out well. Uh, because then, of course, once the taste room closed and we're trying to you know, look at uh, our decreasing revenue and the work that needed to be done, then it was a great opportunity to have just a few of us at the winery doing the work and put off our next bottling till a little bit later and for me to try and keep up, I mean, with the things that had to be done on any given day. So that's a big challenge because the wine can't wait. So fortunately here in Oregon, we were able to keep working. Mm -hmm. um, and there were usually just me on my own in the winery in a given day, just trying to keep up with whatever had to be done mm -hmm. for a few months. And basically to make sure the wines continued to improve in barrel and that I was making some progress towards getting ready for the next bottling. Knowing that I couldn't get fully ready until I had some help back, so then we had to wait for things to open up, mm -hmm. both from the bottling truck standpoint and the labor standpoint, and, and we were able to get our next bottling done in June. So um, I think from that perspective, from a production perspective, it all worked out. From a vineyard perspective, the vines don't care about COVID. This is true everywhere in the valley. I mean, just it's the way it is. So. Grapes are growing, trees are growing, everything's just happening as if, it, you know, just the same as it always would. Um, it's really the sales side that's the biggest question mark. And I think at Apolloni, we have done a great job. Uh, we had uh, our wine club for the shipping proportion happening around this time. And so that was kind of a lifeline to keep things rolling. Mm -hmm. um, and then with the, the various, um, you know, loan programs available. so. We're in reasonable shape um, going forward. For La Rondonnet, it, I guess, fortunately, is not all of my income. It's not my only job. I haven't decided to grow this into a business that supports Cloda and I fully. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the shutdown happened just as we were about to do our two biggest events for the year, which were obviously tasting events that would have drawn hundreds of people. So. They didn't happen. We still have some very supportive wine club members and they've helped us along. And the wine won't go off in a year and it should be fine in two years. So I feel like, what can I do? Instead of fighting it, I'm just, you know, we're doing what we can do and, and we'll probably make, we will make a little bit less wine this year. I think, you know, unfortunately for our grower friends, that's the decision that has to be made. But. Mm -hmm. Uh, hopefully not everyone is making that decision and I know it's going to be a difficult time for growers this year from that perspective. What and about, just, oh go ahead, sorry. Well, I mean the, the other thing that's on my mind in terms of COVID is harvest. My next question, so perfect. Yeah. And it's, as an industry, we're 
we've been having regular calls and conversations and trying to come up with some kind of baseline approved ways of working in close proximity or not, um, or how to do the things that require us to be close to one another during harvest in a safe manner. So hopefully we'll get some clarification on that in the next few weeks, and then it's just a question of implementing that and anything else we feel is necessary at the winery. And asking, I think the most difficult thing for all of us during harvest is going to be asking our harvest interns in particular. Regular employees, maybe it's a little easier, but asking harvest interns to do the best thing for their co-workers during harvest and the business that they're working for and not see other people. Basically, form a small pod, stay in a house with some harvest interns, maybe just from your winery or maybe from a couple of wineries, but no one else, and not going out and about and more socializing than that. I think that is what will make the harvest as successful as it can be anywhere in the world, um, and especially in Oregon, because we have a lot of small brands and small teams, and if a team goes down, then that business is in trouble. It's yeah. not just the wine, it's yeah. potentially that business. So that those those thoughts are weighing on me a bit and kind of exactly what the, what sure. the plan is going to be. And then like a lot of other wineries, we were expecting to have an international intern this year. Um, I don't think that's gonna happen. I mean, I haven't shut the door, I'm kind of waiting to hear. Embassies haven't been open, visas haven't been being processed. I'm not sure that someone would necessarily want to come to the United States, although we're in pretty good shape in Oregon at the moment. I mean, relative to other states, not good shape, mind you, but better. Mm -hmm. um, so it's finding local people to fill in when we or other uh, wineries can't get an in, in, international intern that we'd planned on having. Yeah, the, the, the saddest part, the, the ironic part is that, like you talked about, so many people, the social part of it is such a big part of the industry, and, and to take that away is such a huge, a huge blow to people who want to be in the industry. It's such a, such a bitter irony. Although, it, I mean, it can be equally social. It's just going to be a smaller group. Smaller group. So there's less opportunity for an intern to network with other people and meet maybe as many people from around the world or around the country or encounter as many uh, brands and winemaking styles. But maybe that maybe this is a, a gift or maybe it's a an opportunity in a different way that then the the bonds that we make within a small team at a winery are that much stronger mm -hmm. and that carries us uh, into the future in a different way tell me about how the Oregon wine industry has, has changed since you've been in it what are the biggest changes you've noticed as a part of the industry from when you entered to, to what it looks like now uh, I think it's, I, I think it's changed a tremendous amount. I kind of wonder, you know, I've, I've been in the industry now for 15 years, not an insignificant amount of time, um, but I wonder how, if you could ask someone without their knowledge, someone who's been in the industry since its inception or, or, or longer, without the knowledge of the previous 10 or 15 years, how much do they feel it's changed in the last 10 or 15 compared to the previous 10 or 15? I, I wonder, but mm -hmm. I, we didn't have big brands in Oregon when I started. We didn't have investors from other parts of the country. Okay, TDO was here and maybe there were a couple other French investments, but for the most part, it was 
small brands in Oregon, and I think that's been the, the biggest change. So I think that's been the biggest change, and I, I don't know if it's ultimately good or bad or no different. It feels, I think for a lot of people, like it's maybe bad or less desirable, let's say, mm -hmm. uh, because it's changing or has changed the character of the industry a bit. I think we're still collaborative, but it's not as collaborative as it maybe was before. And I just hope that we can maintain that because that's a big part of what really drew me into the industry was the collaborative nature of, uh, of working together. So here he's coming back with the mower. So you talk about collaboration, and that's obviously a, a big, like you say, a big part you got into the industry, but you're seeing it change. Uh, I, I'm just seeing the, the makeup of the industry change a lot. I think the collaboration has changed some, and although it is still very collaborative, a lot of the inputs um, come more from bigger brands or from the multiple sites of big brands because they send a, a person or two from each site that's on the winemaking team and the marketing team and, and what have you. And I think that, I'm not saying it's bad or good, I just, I wonder. Mm -hmm. I see that as a big difference now. So the, the Oregon Wine Symposium is a great event. I love going to it every year to sort of get my head back up to the 30,000 foot level in terms mm -hmm. of thinking about winemaking and viticulture um, and marketing and sales to a much lesser degree. And it's, it's so it's changed a lot. I just say from when we were in Salem at the convention center there to being at the convention center in Portland, um, it's no less valuable, but it has changed a lot, and I, I'm just kind of wondering mm -hmm. how, how does this go forward. Mm -hmm. Well, let's ask about that. What, what do you see as you look ahead for Oregon wine? What is the industry going to look like in the coming years? Well, COVID throws a big uh, kind of question mark or uncertainty over any of that. I mean, I, if you'd asked me, um, even at the beginning of this year, in the last year, beginning of this year, I've, for La Rondonnet, this would have been our biggest sales year yet. Um, we've grown our sales each of the years that we have been, have been selling, which as I said is since 16. Mm -hmm. And we made more wine with the 19 vintage than we had in any previous vintage. So unfortunately, we won't sell like I thought we were going to. We'll have a little bit more wine to carry over. But as I said, it's not. Wines, we're lucky, I guess. Uh, we're not a farmer growing for a farmer's market the wine will hold. It's not forever, but it'll be okay. It might even be better next year. Um, so that's sort of where I was at with the Laurent thinking, and that applies to, the, to how I saw the Oregon wine industry going. I mean, I think wine tourism is still a huge deal for Oregon, or was, and again, you have this COVID question mark. But I saw the number of brands increasing, the amount of wine being produced, more people being aware of Oregon wine nationwide, worldwide. Uh, when we were on holidays in Ireland last year, I made it a point to take some Oregon wines with me and set up uh, an appointment at a couple of wine shops in Dublin that we were friendly with and just say, hey, here's Oregon, ask me questions. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm here to be a brand ambassador. I mean, no one asked me to do this, but I felt like it's a great opportunity for me to help brand Oregon. 
and make some connections or work my connections in Ireland to, to make more people aware of us. And I think that all that potential is still there. And I think as long as people keep consuming wine, or maybe that continues to increase in the way that it has been recently, then I think all of that potential is still there and, and will be bigger and better individually and as a, an industry here in Oregon in a few years. It's just mm -hmm. not going to happen this year. I don't think it probably won't happen next year. And so how does the Oregon wine industry look in a few years? Well, how many years out are we talking? And, and hopefully we will have few issues with attrition as a result of COVID. That's certainly a worry. Mm -hmm. And especially in the hospitality industry, because mm -hmm. we to one degree or another, just depend on bars and restaurants to sell our wares and introduce individual brands as well as brand Oregon to a lot of people. And we were very successful with that uh, as, an, as an industry. And we will be again, but maybe there will be fewer yeah. restaurants. It's, I guess there will be. So it's, that's, that's the biggest worry in my mind for the, for the industry as a whole. Because, I mean, you kind of chuckle. With COVID, I think the media has talked up how much more people are drinking and how wine sales went through the roof for the first month. And for some brands, I'm sure that's true. But the nature of this pandemic favored a certain distribution model, a certain business model. And that favors bigger producers. So it's, yeah, it's, it's more of a corporate um, model for the most part, so it favors bigger corporations. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that's not the majority of Oregon. So what about as you look ahead for, for yourself and, and for your La Rondonet and for Apolloni, what do you kind of see as you look ahead for them? Obviously, same, same caveat applies with COVID, but what are you kind of hoping for uh, in terms of growth and, and, and change? Uh, well, I think for, for Apolloni, we, as I think with most brands, have been just kind of saying, okay, well, how is phase one working for us? How can we or do we need to change our model to, uh, to make it more successful for us? How reliable is the wine club? How can we give the wine club the same value that we have given them in the past or that they feel like they're getting the same value? So I think we're all kind of navigating those things and we will have to adapt over the next year and and that's going to take all of us, I think, working a little bit more diligently on different sides, all sides of the business, to, to make that a success. So I don't really have a good answer for you. It's just that we're all trying to adapt at the moment. For La Rondonet, I, as I said, I'm going to make a little bit less wine this year. I'm sure it'll be just as good. <laughs> I'm sure that when people have the opportunity to try it, they'll, they'll be just as happy with it. But I feel like we need to focus, um, Cloda and I, on our wine club members and by shrinking production and making that a little bit more in line with our regular customers, it will hopefully make our job a little bit easier too. And that's, um, I don't know, I think a lot of people are doing some soul searching during COVID and I have done that too and thought a lot about how much time I spend having a business as well as a, a day job so to speak or a side hustle in addition to my day job and 
it's a lot. Um, I'd like it to be a little bit less. Mm -hmm. With all this said, uh, it's, it, it, your interviews kind of captured a lot of different sides of what it's like being in the Oregon wine industry, the, the kind of the good and the bad and the, and the question, question mark. Um, you talked earlier kind of about um, if someone were getting into the industry, what, what your advice would be for them to be, would be uh, kind of get, get all this said, what would you tell someone if they came to you tomorrow and said they wanted to get into Oregon wine? Uh, I guess it depends where they are at in their life or their career at the moment. I mean, for, I can speak very, um, from, I mean, I have a lot of experience with a career change into the wine industry. So I would have no problem chatting with somebody about that and saying, well, here's how difficult it's going to be. Mm -hmm. Or here are the different avenues into the wine industry. You can um, invest and start a brand. You can want to become a, a worker in this part of the industry or this part of the industry, this part of the industry. So that, what would I say? I just be prepared for it to be a long road and much less financially uh, rewarding, at least initially, than probably most any career if you're changing out of it. However, it has all of these other uh, rewards. You know, the, the culture, even in the United States, which doesn't have the same depth or maybe breadth of culture of food and wine that most European countries do, or many European countries do, even so, we have this great food and wine culture, and it's a tremendous amount of fun to be part of. And it's, you know, I talked about the whole Kevin and wanting to change my career to, to put all of my faculties to work, and the biggest, um, the biggest change in that area was really developing my sense of smell. And I think all, we all as humans have this amazing sense of smell, but it's not very well practiced. Mm -hmm. So that is sort of a, an example or a metaphor for sure if you want to change your career into the Oregon wine and into the wine industry um, it's like a new awakening in some respects mm -hmm. not only you know physically from a sensory standpoint but um, all these other food and wine learning more about the small business it's just it's like this renaissance great awakening uh, has happened in the in the middle of my life, the middle of my career. So I feel very fortunate to do that, but as we talked about, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a road mm -hmm. to get to that point. Now on the other hand, if someone was saying, well, I want to do, uh, I want to get into the wine industry and this is my first career, or I've just finished college, or I'm thinking about going to college, what should I study? Maybe it's a little bit easier to get started at that point because I think we'd all expect to work our way up from whatever new career we start, and if we haven't already started one, that's no bother. Um, so, yeah. Sure. I'm not sure I really answered the question, because to me it's, or maybe there isn't an easy answer to the question. To me it's more having a conversation. Um, it's back to that social part of the industry and social part of Kevin that I've discovered being here. <laughs> I think be prepared to work hard is also probably, the way you started is probably pretty good advice. <laughs> Absolutely. I, that kind of goes, that's part of my nature. I mean, I, Claude will tell you, I'm, I 
rarely sit still. I'm always busy doing something. Um, so yeah, I fully expect to always be in motion and doing something in the, in the wine industry, at least the production side. So all the questions that I have for you today. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we, we didn't cover here that we should have covered? Um, I mean, I didn't really come with a, a list of things I wanted to talk <laughs> about or a particular agenda. So, I mean, I really, I feel like I've gotten to talk about a lot of my experience in life and in the, in the Oregon wine industry. Good. Good. So I appreciate the questions that got us there. And I feel, I mean, I really do feel lucky to be living in Oregon. Um, a special place because we have this amazing set of uh, values around our land that really enables us as wine growers to farm in the way we do close to the cities because the city is where the people live and outside of those boundaries is where the agriculture is mm -hmm. and coming from uh, coming from Colorado and seeing that lack of land use planning mm -hmm. and more of the sprawl mentality that grips most of the country, I feel very, very fortunate to be here from that perspective and because the industry has been a lot of fun. I think the majority of the people are really genuinely, we want to be here mm -hmm. in Oregon, we want to be in the wine industry, we want to help one another and I feel fortunate to be a part of that. And Excellent. And I've gotten the opportunity to work with a number of great people. Excellent. That's awesome. Thank you so much for Thank joining you, us Rich. today, for, for sharing your stories with us and doing a little bit of technical difficulty there in the middle. Uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.